Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. happening happy hump day to you and yours thanks for joining me as always it is much appreciated coming up a little bit later celtics thoughts with the trading deadline coming up tomorrow and of course jalen brown is going to be in the dunk contest but let's talk about the patriots offense with alex van pelt and ben mcadoo signed sealed and delivered avp mcadoo will be running this offense in 2024 of course mcadoo will be above avp and help him design this offense, put it together week to week, game plan for certain opponents, et cetera, et cetera. Before we get into the details, because I've, I've given you my thoughts on McAdoo, I've given you my thoughts on Alex Van Pelt and those hires and how I see them and if they make sense or not for the Patriots. Today, we're going to jump into the offense. Some of the things that McAdoo has done recently, some of the things that we saw with the Cleveland Browns offense with Van Pelt there last year, we're going to get into all of that. But first and foremost, let's recognize one thing. Talent matters the most. If you don't have the horses, it doesn't matter what your scheme is. The Jimmys and Joes, X's and O's conversation, it's a real thing. This team, the most crucial part of this offseason is not even this coaching staff. It's not the scheme that they're going to run. It's free agency. It's the draft. Who are they going to have on the field running this offense? Will they have enough talent? Will they have a wide receiver one? What will the offensive tackle position look like? And of course, who's going to be the freaking quarterback? So we have to recognize, acknowledge, and respect the fact that it depends on talent how far this offense is going to go, how productive it can be, and how successful McAdoo and Van Pelt will be here in New England running the system they want to run. Van Pelt is somewhat of an unknown as an offensive coordinator. He has not called plays at the NFL level since 2009 outside of a couple of games when Kevin Stefanski was out due to COVID. So there's a lot unknown about how Van Pelt will run an offense on game day. And we look at Ben McAdoo. He's been at multiple places with a lot of different quarterbacks. So we have to learn from the history, learn from the history of what these guys like to do and how they do it. What jumps out at me first about both McAdoo and Van Pelt is the experience with quarterbacks that they have. You're talking about somebody in Van Pelt who played the position at the NFL level, who has been a quarterback's coach for 11 years. That is so much experience with that position. He's worked with a bunch of different guys, as we know. So when you look at Van Pelt, you start with that quarterback experience. You look at McAdoo. McAdoo has been a quarterback's coach at the NFL level for three years. So you have a lot of brain power positioned to work with the next quarterback for the Patriots. And if some people believe Mac Jones will return and get a shot, a lot of brain power to work with the guy who was the QB one a year ago. McAdoo could be, he could be framed as a quarterback whisperer in some ways. We talked about some of this yesterday, but I'm sure some of you missed it. 
you know, McAdoo working with Eli Manning back in 2014 and 15, he really revitalized Eli's career for those two seasons. When you look at what Eli did in 2013, he threw 27 interceptions in that year alone. McAdoo, as the offensive coordinator, along with Eli, in 14 and 15, Eli threw 65 touchdowns and 28 interceptions. So just a complete flip of Eli Manning in 14 and 15 compared to 2013. Greg Bedard wrote this about McAdoo yesterday. With the Panthers, McAdoo used three quarterbacks with distinctly different skill sets to work to an extent. The Panthers went from 1-4 and four with Rule to 7-10 and 10 after Rule. And uh, if you look at it, they finished 6-6 six and six without run CMC. So they started 1-4, and four, they finished 7-10. and 10. So obviously 6-6 six and six once Rule was kicked out. I touched on this yesterday as well. McAdoo's evaluation of quarterbacks. Here's a little more context to that. Again, this is Greg Bedard from Boston Sports Journal. One person who worked with McAdoo said, quote, he's an awesome talent evaluator at all offensive positions, unquote. And when we talk about McAdoo evaluating talent, we're talking about McAdoo evaluating talent in the moment. You know, I was watching last night BST with Felger and Holly. And they were talking about, well, you know, a lot of times people say in hindsight, they were fans of this person or that person. In hindsight, oh, I knew Brady was going to be good. Oh, I knew Brock Purdy was going to be good. No, this is in-the-moment evaluation. McAdoo went to Patrick Mahomes Pro Day as the Giants offensive coordinator. He came back to the facility to stand on the table for the Giants to trade up for Mahomes. Of the 2018 draft class, McAdoo had Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson at the top of his list. Now, he also had Baker Mayfield behind Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, and Mason Rudolph, so not everything was perfect. McAdoo was proven right, but Dar writes, in his decision to bench Eli Manning in 2017, even though it ended McAdoo's time with the Giants. McAdoo was also right that he thought Geno Smith could be the long-term starter after Manning. Smith went on to start for the Seahawks. So there is tangible evidence that in real time, Ben McAdoo has done a really good job of evaluating quarterback play from college level to the NFL level and in the NFL. He's done a good job of that. I think that's great news. And when you look at the quarterback evaluation skills and you look at the history that both of these guys have, McAdoo and Van Pelt, there is no more important of an offseason than this one when we talk about quarterback play and the future of the Patriots. If the Patriots are going to take a swing at number three at that position, they need to land the right guy. If you swing and miss at three, drafting a quarterback, it could set you back five, six years. So this is a crucial offseason to figure out the most important position on the field. And you have McAdoo and Van Pelt with all of this experience working with quarterbacks and evaluating quarterbacks. I think that's smart business. On top of that, you have Elliot Wolf. Elliot Wolf obviously came up with the Green Bay Packers. He worked underneath his father. And if there's one thing that the Green Bay Packers has done a great job of, it has been finding quarterbacks. They drafted Aaron Rodgers as he slid down the board, right? They brought in Brett Favre. They drafted Hasselbeck. They drafted Mark Brunel. They drafted Jordan Love. So Green Bay has hit at that position a lot more than other teams have hit on that position over the past 20, 25 years. So you have McAdoo, Van Pelt, and Elliott Wolf 
who have all worked with evaluating quarterbacks and have all succeeded at different levels with quarterbacks and different types of quarterbacks. It's a huge, huge thing when you look at the experience and what they're doing on the offensive staff with the quarterback position and the decisions that have to be made this offseason. They added to it today. According to Jonathan Jones from CBS, quarterback's coach, the target is T.C. McCartney. McCartney most recently served as Cleveland's tight ends coach, was the Broncos quarterback's coach in 2019. He reunites with Alex Van Pelt in New England. McCartney has lots of experience on the staff, again, working with quarterbacks. He has experience with Kyle Shanahan. We'll talk more about McCartney tomorrow. But again, I'm not telling you this is going to succeed. I'm not telling you that Van Pelt and McAdoo are home runs, quote-unquote. All I can do is look at who the Patriots have hired and what they're doing with the staff and decide if it makes sense or not. That's all I can do. Nobody can guarantee you success or failure from this staff because nobody knows. So when I look at this, I ask the question, does it make sense? Does it make sense to bring in two coaches who have experience with each other, experience running the same kind of offense, and a lot of experience in the development of the quarterback position and evaluating quarterbacks? Given the current situation that you're living in, if you're the Patriots, that makes a lot of sense to me. Not telling you it's going to be successful. It just makes sense. It's smart. It's smart when you're looking for the next QB1, the next franchise. It is smart to fill your offensive staff and your front office with people who have a lot of experience with that position and evaluating that position. And Wolf being there in the front office, drafting that position and looking at quarterbacks and understanding how the Packers break that position down. It makes a lot of sense to me. And it's not just, oh, they had a top quarterback and they got great productivity from him. Another thing that McAdoo and Van Pelt have proven recently is that they can deal with in-season adjustments and some very difficult in-season adjustments. If you're concerned about the 2024 Patriots offensive staff being stuck in a box and not being able to adjust or adapt, I would say they've told you that they can do that, that they can adapt and they can adjust given whoever is playing at quarterback. Van Pelt last year, five different QB1s, Joe Flacco, Deshaun Watson, DTR, P.J. Walker, Jeff Driscoll. All of those quarterbacks are vastly different. Flacco, obviously, pocket passer, play action guy, bootleg kind of guy, deep shots down the field. Watson, out of the shotgun, moving around, spread formation. DTR uses his legs a lot. P.J. Walker, not very good, kind of all over the place. Jeff Driscoll, a run-first kind of QB. Those are vastly different quarterbacks that McAdoo, scratch that, that Van Pelt wor worked with in 2023. Van Pelt also lost the top offensive player in Nick Chubb, who started only two games for the Browns last year. He ran the football 28 times, and they won 11 games. Meanwhile, Ben McAdoo back in 2022 with Carolina, his one season as the OC, he had to work with three different starting quarterbacks. He had to work with Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, and Walker. And those guys, again, are vastly different quarterbacks. McAdoo also lost his top offensive player. Run CMC only started six games. The Panthers traded him once they knew the season was lost. 
CMC ran the football 85 times for Carolina in 2022. And McAdoo, again, with all of that change, having to adjust, having to adapt, this team in Carolina back in 2022 finished 6-6 six and six after starting 1-4. and four. So the ability to adapt and adjust with your talent that you have on hand, that is crucial, important. And I think that goes back to the offensive system. It is a friendly offensive system. It's quarterback friendly. The terminology is much more simple than the terminology of the Earhart Perkins offense. And that's why you see different quarterbacks at different levels giving you some pretty good play within one season. All right, don't forget to give us that like. Thumbs up means the world to us. We are building momentum with this podcast. More traffic each and every week. Last week was our best week. Hopefully this week will be our best week as we move forward here. Don't forget to give us that thumbs up. If you're watching on YouTube, give us that like. It means the world to us. It takes one second of your time. Facebook, Twitter, slash X. Comment and subscribe. I have more thoughts on McAdoo and Van Pelt, and we're going to dive into what they can do for this offense in 2024 and what it will look like. Derek Rosado jumps in and says, hoping to get the O-line coach from the Seahawks. Yes, they're looking at Dickerson. Haven't heard much from the initial report. I know Dickerson was getting looked at by, I believe, Cleveland as well. So not sure if they're going to get that guy or not. We'll see. Derek jumps in and says, good morning. Good morning, Derek. From their offensive hires, it makes me believe they're going to take a rookie quarterback in the first round. Well, it, it would absolutely make you believe that they're going to bring in a young quarterback. Is that quarterback going to be the third pick overall? Is that quarterback going to be a second-round pick, third-round pick? We don't know. Are they going to trade for Justin Fields? But absolutely, there's no doubt that this staff, as we've been talking about, a lot of experience working with quarterbacks and evaluating that position. And it certainly makes you feel, at least it makes me feel more confident in this team's ability to find the right guy this offseason with all of that experience. Don't forget, you can send a super chat to jump the line. Something else about McAdoo and Van Pelt. They love using the tight end position when they have talent at that position to use. Here was Greg Bedard, Boston Sports Journal, writing about McAdoo and tight ends. With the Packers, McAdoo's tight end group was always one of the better positions on the team. Donald Lee, Bubba Franks, Jermichael Finley, Ryan Taylor. So when you look at McAdoo's history, he's had a lot of good, a lot of good tight ends on the roster that he's worked with and gotten production from. Look at last year, the Browns, David Njoku with Van Pelt and Stefanski. Njoku set a career high in receptions, touchdowns, and yards. And he took off when Joe Flacco took over. Flacco started five games in the regular season for the Browns. And Joku's numbers during those five games were off the charts. 30 catches, 390 yards, four touchdowns. If you extrapolate that for the entire season, David and Joku with Joe Flacco as quarterback last year with the Browns would have had 102 catches over 1,300 yards and 14 touchdowns. Tight end production. Evan Lazar, Patriots.com, wrote about Cleveland's formations and tight end usage last year. The Browns used six-plus offensive linemen, the low, most in the NFL. They played over 24% of their snaps with two-plus tight ends. They also led the NFL in I-formation plays. So big personnel, two tight ends, six-plus offensive linemen. And by the way, T.C. McCartney, 
who is looking like he's going to be the next quarterback's coach for the Patriots. He was also a former tight ends coach. So tight ends, quarterbacks. Makes you wonder, what will the Patriots do at the tight end position as we go into an offseason where they don't have a single tight end signed for 2024? You look at McAdoo, you look at Van Pelt and what they like to do most recently, they like to use tight ends. If they have talented tight ends, they get the most out of those guys. It would lead you to believe that Hunter Henry could certainly be back here with the Patriots. Will Farrow Brown be back? Will they look at spending money on somebody like a Dalton Schultz? Would that be a possibility? Is there somebody in the draft that they identify that they think could be really, really good in this system? So quarterbacks, tight ends, makes a lot of sense. Again, I'm not telling you they're going to succeed. This is simply an exercise to let you know what Van Pelt and McAdoo have done, like to do, and what we might expect next year's offense to look like. I talked about Kyle Shanahan last week, right, on Friday's podcast, and how the Shanahan-McVay offense uses lots of motion. And that's really an evolution of the West Coast offense, using that pre-snap motion and using motion at the snap. So what should we expect in 2024 if we look back at McAdoo in 2022 and Van Pelt in 2023 with the Browns? What should we expect as far as motion? Not a lot of it. If you look at McAdoo and Van Pelt, unless they're going to change what they've done in their most recent seasons as OCs, they did not use motion a lot. Was that a talent issue? Was that a philosophical thing? McAdoo in 2022, when you look at the Panthers, they were 20th in the NFL when it came to motion at the snap. They were 24th in the league in overall motion. Van Pelt and Stefanski last year, they were 31st, the second least amount of motion at the snap in the NFL. They were 24th in overall motion. So McAdoo in 22, Van Pelt in 23, they did not design offenses that utilized motion, especially at the snap. Now, you might be wondering, Nick, what were the Patriots' numbers last season? I've got those for you. So remember, last year, Cleveland was 31st in the NFL with motion at the snap. The Patriots were 19th. Overall motion, the Patriots were 11th in the league last year. So even if you thought that the Patriots weren't doing a lot of motion, they were actually 11th in the league overall motion, just not at the snap. And you see a lot at the snap with the Miami Dolphins, right? Tyreek Hill in motion, and then right at the snap of the football, he darts off downfield. Belichick was pissed several times this year, saying that that was illegal. So when it comes to motion, McAdoo and Van Pelt haven't used a lot of it. But that doesn't mean there's a lack of creativity. Taylor Kyles from CLNS posted this over the last few days. According to Pro Football Focus, the Browns ran the third most trick plays behind the Dolphins and Titans. So Van Pelt and Stefanski, they like themselves some trick plays. And don't forget that Van Pelt is the guy who was designing this offense in game planning. So they will go to trick plays. They will use trick plays. I mean, Andy Reid is a disciple of the West Coast offense, and we know Andy Reid loves himself some trick plays. All right, let's jump into uh, Super Chat. 
Thank you, William, for sending this super chat. Thank you for everything, my friend. You have become a can't-miss show. I appreciate that. I appreciate the kind words. I appreciate every super chat and every contribution made to this program. And I really love all of your comments and what you guys bring to the table and gals. I think you add a lot. And that's why we started to go live, to get the live interaction with all of you. So inevitably, the question is with the motion, will the Patriots evolve? Will Van Pelt and will McAdoo use motion more than they have used the last two stops? I would hope to see more motion. I think in the NFL, motion is huge offensively. I think it helps shift the defense. It makes it easier on the quarterback. It opens up the field more, especially in the middle of the field. So I would hope and I want McAdoo and Van Pelt to lean on more motion than they have used in prior years. You know, if you look at McAdoo and Van Pelt, it's more Mike McCarthy than it is Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay when it comes to running motion before the snap and at the snap. Now, T.C. McCartney, who is the guy who's going to be the quarterback's coach, according to the most recent reports, you know, McCartney, he has experience with Kyle Shanahan and Kyle Shanahan's offense. So does that mean we'll see more of motion in 2024? I don't know. Again, we have no idea precisely what this is going to look like. These are just some ideas as to what it has looked like in the past with both of these guys. I want evolution when it comes to motion with this offense. Let's see more of it, especially at the snap. Some other great tidbits from Evan Lazar on the Cleveland offense from 2023. Here are just some bullet points for you, okay? Get ready. The Cleveland offense last year, they ran the second most designed runs in the league. So they utilized the run a lot. Most of their offense is off of the run game. At least it was last year. A lot of run game, a lot of deep shots off the play action for chunk plays. So they ran the second most designed runs last year. They had the seventh most play action passing in the league. Seventh highest play action rate. And that play action rate skyrocketed when they had Joe Flacco. So depending on the kind of quarterback that they bring in, if the Patriots bring in a pocket-passing quarterback, if it's a Jacoby Brissett, if it's a Joe Flacco, if they draft Drake May, if that's what they do, for them you know, to keep Mac Jones, some people say, oh, they could bring back Mac Jones. If it's a pocket-passing quarterback, we look at Cleveland's offense and what they did last year with Joe Flacco as the foundation of what we can anticipate seeing in 2024, which is run the football, lots of play action, bootleg action and throws downfield, which, by the way, that doesn't really smell like Mac Jones to me. Matt Patricia tried to get Mac Jones to throw the football more down the field in 2022, and it was not a good idea. So what you're looking at as far as a pocket-passing quarterback within this offense, what we could expect if it's one of those guys, and I know Drake May is a fantastic talent as far as athletically, but he is more of a pocket passer quarterback than a Jaden Daniels is, right? And even a Caleb Williams. So if you're looking at that kind of quarterback, lots of play action, running the football, lots of bootleg, off the play action, and deep shots. Other elements to Cleveland's passing game last year. They had the fourth most snaps of 11 personnel. That means three wide receivers. 
West Coast offense, whether it's Shanahan, whether it's McVay, whether it's, you know, last year with Stefanski and Van Pelt, a lot of 11 personnel, a lot of three wide receiver sets. They also had the fourth most empty formations in football last year. They were the ninth highest team in the league when it came to spread formation usage. Again, this is all from Evan Lazar at Patriots.com. Now, they ran spread and they ran empty formation more with Deshaun Watson than they did with Joe Flacco. Again, that goes back to the idea of their ability to adjust and adapt the game plan according to whoever the quarterback was. Bunch formations, the eighth most in the league. They were also eighth highest when it came to rate with three wide receivers to one side. So a lot of bunch formations, a lot of three wide receiver sets to one side, a lot of three wide receiver 11 personnel. So that's what we're talking about. One final thing I would say about this offense, just from a 30,000-foot view, when we look at McAdoo and Van Pelt and McCartney and, and what they're building here, you're talking about cohesion. Tommy Heinsohn, one of his favorite words was cohesion. I remember growing up watching the Seas, which we'll get into in a couple minutes with the trade deadline tomorrow. Tommy would always talk about cohesion. Is the team cohesive? This coaching staff is cohesive. McAdoo, Van Pelt, McCartney, guys that have worked together, which means they understand each other. They know how to communicate. We also know that they can make this offense adaptable to whichever talent that they bring in. And think about that. That wasn't the case with the Earhart Perkins offense because there was so much to learn and the terminology was so difficult and everybody had to be on the same page to a ridiculous degree that it wasn't always easy to just say, oh, that quarterback will work. That guy will work. With the West Coast offense, the terminology is more simple. It is more quarterback friendly, which makes this offense more adaptable given the situation simplified three wide receiver sets and let's not forget quarterback tight end history there's a long history at those two positions with Van Pelt McAdoo and even now the guy who's being targeted to be the quarterback's coach T.C. McCartney all right before we get to the uh, Celtics let's jump to some of these chats that we have always appreciate the chats that you guys throw at us James asks, do you think the Van Pelt hire was because Mayo hasn't been around the league? That has a lot to do with what's going on here with the offensive staff. And we talked about that before, you know, Mayo was hired. When we looked at Mayo as a candidate, one of the cons was the fact that he just does not have the Rolodex, the network that other guys have in the league. He coached only for five years. He played and coached in New England. He was not going to go out there and be able to work with a vast amount of people that he has experience with to bring them onto this staff. Cameron says, I agree with what Bedard said on the pod yesterday. Seems like they are looking at the staying power of these coaches, and I like that idea. Marry a new quarterback with a full staff for more than a year. Yes, that is a positive. Alex Van Pelt, I don't think, is going to go anywhere in the next two or three years. If this offense is working out, I think he's here for at least a couple of years, at least. Same could be said for Ben McAdoo. And if Van Pelt goes somewhere else, let's say the offense explodes and Van Pelt goes somewhere else, well, now you have McAdoo on the staff who could take over as the offensive coordinator and who has been here working with this quarterback and with this staff for a year. Makes a lot of sense. One of the issues with hiring a young gun offensive coordinator 
is a lot of times those guys end up getting hired elsewhere as head coaches and you lose them after a season. You're going to start all over. Now, I would counter that and say just build your staff right. If you build your staff right, then you're not as worried about that. But I think absolutely that's part of this story. No doubt about it. Ian says, get Troy Brown out the door. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see what they do with Troy Brown. I, I don't think he's been good with the wide receivers. Of course, you look at Van Pelt's history. You look at Mayo's history. You know, Mayo was with Troy Brown for a lot of years. Knows Troy Brown well. Uh, will he feel loyal to him like Belichick did, or will he move somewhere else? Because Van Pelt has experience with Chad O'Shea, a former Patriots receivers coach. You could see O'Shea come back. You could see somebody else come back. Maybe an Edgar Bennett who's out there in, in Vegas. I know Bedard's been talking about that. So we'll see what happens. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. Always appreciate it. Trying to get to 2,000 subscriptions by March 1st. We do things differently here. I appreciate every single one of you. Paul jumps in and says, Nick, great show as always. Uh, watching in great. I would imagine that's Britain. Would like to see motion bootleg plays with Fields passing the MH Jr. Be a good fit, right? That would be a very interesting thing, right? Fields with the play action, bootleg, Marvin Harrison. Could see some of that. All right, let's jump to the Celtics. First, quickly, I hate the idea of Jalen Brown in the dunk contest. I might be old school thinking this way, but I hate it. What is the risk-reward quotient here? You have Jalen Brown out there, dunk contest. What if Jalen gets hurt? Worst case scenario, he gets hurt during a dunk contest. I don't care about the dunk contest. I'm glad that Jalen's all fired up for this, but I couldn't care less about the dunk contest. Rest your legs. That's more important than the dunk title. I'll continue. I'll continue with my Celtics thoughts in a minute, but I've got to hit this uh, super chat from Cool Genuine Phil. Sup, Nick? At number three, who was your second round pick? Well, I think if you go quarterback at three, I've said this, if you go quarterback at three, I lean offensive tackle in the second round. If you have to trade up late in the first round to get that tackle, then you do it. But I like the idea. If you love a quarterback, I like the idea of drafting that quarterback in the first round at three and then swinging back either at the top of the second round or jumping in late in the first round and drafting the offensive tackle. If you have a left tackle of the future and a quarterback of the future, I think it's a great start. All right, Celtics, 38-12, and 12, first in the Eastern Conference, five-game lead. The trading deadline is tomorrow at 3 o'clock. And what we're talking about is we're talking about depth, right? We're not talking about adding a piece that's going to start for this team. We're looking at somebody who can come off the bench and give you a little bit of a kick. Adam Himmelsbach of the Globe, who is very tied in with the Celtics. He's almost always freaking right with what he posts. Regarding the Celtics trade deadline situation he posted last night, sources are saying it'd be a surprise if the Celtics do not complete a deal, most likely for a player who can essentially serve as injury insurance. Again, we're talking depth. So if Himmelsbach says his sources believe that it's much more likely that a deal happens than doesn't happen, I think we're going to see a trade over the next 24 hours or so for the Celtics. Now let's give you some background. The Celtics cannot sign a buyout guy if that buyout guy was making more than the mid-level exception. Because of the CBA, I don't want to glaze your eyes over, but you can't go out and sign a Gordon Hayward if Hayward gets bought out because he was making more than the MLE. The assets, 
The Celtics have the vet minimum guys at the end of the bench. They have a $6.2 million trade player exception for Grant Williams. Sam Hauser's making about $2 million. Peyton Pritchard's making $4 million. I don't think we should expect Hauser or Pritchard to be traded. So really, you're looking at guys at the end of the bench, that trade exception, and as far as picks, the Celtics have eight, eight second-round picks that they could use in a trade, and they could trade uh, their 2024 first-round pick, their 2026 first-round pick, or their 2031 first-round pick. So those are the assets that they have. Don't forget to give us a like. If you like the Celtics talk, give us that thumbs up. It takes a second of your time. means a lot to us. So what do the Celtics need? I know they're sitting pretty in the East, but I think the Celtics do have a couple of needs. Number one, a dependable big. Somebody who could play the four slash five. Of course, Porzingis, we have all the injury questions. Those injury questions are not going to go away because of his history. We have Al Horford. In his late 30s, you know, he, he hasn't consistently always been on this year. And you wonder if you get to the postseason what Al is going to look like. So I want to have insurance behind Porzingis and Horford. Porzingis because of injuries, Horford because of age. And I don't trust Luke Cornett in the playoffs. I don't trust Kata in the playoffs. I want somebody who is a dependable 4 five. And I want somebody who's physical, somebody who will get on the glass, somebody who can body some of these bigger-framed, strong big men. Think of the Joel Embiid's of the world. Even at the four, think of the Giannis's. Who will be able to physically match up or at least give those guys somewhat of a challenge? And I know Embiid's out for months. Who knows what's going to happen with him? I'm just giving you an idea, an example of the type of player that the Celtics need to defend. Al can do that. Al can do that, but Al's not going to play 30, 35 minutes. And Porzingis is not necessarily great at defending physical big guys. Not his strong suit. He protects the rim. He can move around. His length is fantastic. But he can get bodied by some of those thicker guys in the league. I also think a wing scorer and a wing creator. Somebody who can get to the free throw line. You know, the free throw line, Celtics don't get a ton of free throws across the board. You know, Sam Hauser never gets to the line coming off the bench. If they can bring somebody in who comes off the bench and can get to the free throw line, show some more versatility, can score on three levels, can create for himself unlike Hauser. And that doesn't mean you sit Hauser. You could find somebody who's a two-slash-three who can come in along with Hauser and give you some of that offensive creation and get to the bucket more. I think they need that, somebody who can do that. And you also don't want to bail on the defensive end. So here's the latest as far as some names. Tony Jones in The Athletic, he is the Utah Jazz beat writer. He wrote about Simone Fontecchio. Utah's starting small forward has emerged as a serious trade target for the Suns and Celtics. Fontecchio is in the final year of a contract that pays him $3.1 million. Fontecchio has emerged this season as an effective rotation-level player. Shot the ball well, particularly since being inserted into the starting lineup. He's also proven to be at least an adept wing defender. He's a shooter with size and length. He is fearless on the floor. Sign me up. Sign me up for Fontecchio. I'm in. Jones writes, if Fontecchio is dealt, he will be a restricted free agent, which would give team control to whoever trades for him, which is also big. 
because you have limited resources if you're the Celtics and limited money to add to this team because of all the big contracts that you have on the roster currently. B-Rob, my buddy from Mass Live, he also reports that the Celtics are interested in Fontecchio. He also lists the Celtics being interested in Kevin Dunn. The old school, right? Ah, Dunn. Providence College. We all remember Dunn. We all remember Chris Dunn from PC. I called him Kevin Dunn. That was my wrestling taking over for a minute. We all remember Chris Dunn. Providence College, a lot of talk that the Celtics might draft Dunn. They never did. Ainge, obviously a big fan, brought him into Utah. So Chris Dunn and Kelly Olynyk also being brought up by B-Rob as possibilities. It's tougher for Olynyk because of the money. I've got some other names for you. I would be interested in a guy like Reggie Bullock. He's in Houston. He's wasting away. He can shoot the ball. He can defend a little bit. Lonnie Walker in Brooklyn brings that offense, brings that creativity, somebody who can get to the line, kind of instant offense. Najee Marshall from New Orleans is another guy I would look at. So those are your wings. As far as bigs, Andre Drummond has been linked to the Celtics. I wouldn't mind Andre Drummond for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Again, big physical presence in the middle. Can fight physically with the other big guys, the imposing bigs in the league. Is a good rebounder. Is a tremendous rebounder. And one of the most recent issues with the Celtics is their defensive rebounding. Giving up way too many offensive rebounds, especially when they go to the bench. So Andre Drummond I like. Nick Richards is another guy that I would look at. Xavier Tillman is another big that I would look at. And a bigger-sized wing that I like, Sadiq Bey in Atlanta. Now, he's having a down year. He's more of a three-slash-four. But those are some of the guys that I would look at if I were the Celtics. Again, the trade deadline is coming up tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern. I expect the Celtics to add at least one body to this team and add to the team's depth. All right, let's wrap up with a few more chats. Brian jumps in and says, Nick, first time watching live. Love the content. I appreciate you, Brian. I really do. I appreciate every single person that watches, that listens. I especially appreciate all of you that like, comment, and subscribe. Trying to get to 2,000 subscriptions by the beginning of March, March 1st. Mike Larry says, Flacco made the playoffs. I think Flacco's interesting. The idea of Joe Flacco coming in, very interesting idea because he proved this past season that he still can spot start. He still has something left in the tank. He's also somebody who's been in the league forever, has won a Super Bowl, and fits as a veteran, somebody who could be a backup quarterback for 2024. Amstel says, if we pass on quarterback, we won't see the playoffs till 2029. That's one of the biggest concerns. I've talked about this. If you're the Patriots, you're sitting there at three. If you love a quarterback, I think it's insane to not take the quarterback. Because the likelihood you will have another opportunity like this. The Patriots have not drafted this high since 1993 when they drafted Bledsoe. The likelihood of you being in position without having to give up a bunch of assets to get into the position to draft a quarterback, if you love a guy, the opportunity is difficult to find. It's not easy to have a top pick. So, you know, you're in that position. If you love a guy and you think 
Drake May or Jaden Daniels has the kind of talent to be a generational quarterback, I, I don't think you turn that down. I don't know how you can turn that down. And I know people love Marvin Harrison Jr. and people are liking the idea of a tackle. I just, I, I don't I don't think you can pass up that opportunity. I think it'd be bananas. All right, I appreciate every single one of you joining the show on this Wednesday. Uh, don't forget to give us that thumbs up. Don't forget to comment. Don't forget to subscribe. If you're watching on Spotify, Apple Pods, you can rate and review. The five-star reviews are always fantastic. Trying to build momentum of this podcast, trying to get to 2,000 subscribers. Last week was a fantastic week. Hopefully this week we'll continue with that momentum as we build this family. It's what it is. Family, community, we do things different here. It's the Nick Cattle Show. I appreciate every single one of you. Back tomorrow unless something bananas breaks at 11 a.m. on YouTube. Until then, thank you. It has been the Nick Cattle Show.